0: This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech
1: leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello clean tech enthusiasts, my name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com.
0: Welcome to another edition of Clean Tech Talk. I'm your co host, Michael Bernard, and Zach Shahan is on the line as well. Uh, today we're talking to Michael Mann. Yes, that Michael Mann, not the earthquake geologist out of Alaska or the other Michael Manns, but the one famous for the hockey stick. Um, and someone who John Cook uh, told me this morning is probably the scientist most subject to character assassination globally, uh, which I thought was an interesting. Uh, thing to say. Michael, how are you? Uh,
1: despite all that, I'm, I'm doing quite okay here. Thanks, Michael. It's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly have been following your time in Australia. It was uh, interesting because I was on the call with two Australians who were both in the United States <laughs> and Canada talking about you, an American currently in Australia. Um, but you, know, you just got through a very interesting panel on ABC. So yeah. um, that, you know, I have to say you had the audience on your side.
1: Well, you know, I like to think that uh, the audience is on the side of the the basic facts. And and that's what I try to speak to. Um, I try to make it interesting and entertaining for the audience. But ultimately, it's about the facts. It's about what the science has to say about this um, monumental challenge, this threat that we face in human-caused climate change. And here in Australia, people get it, right? Because this is no longer a theoretical problem. They're watching it play out in real time. Uh, in the form of unprecedented drought and heat and bushfires. And now uh, we're getting, of course, the flash floods, um, uh, extremes of, of uh, all types here in Australia as we literally watch climate change unfold.
0: Yeah, and you're, you're down there, um, as I understand it, finishing off a book, but uh, also people are, uh, you're, you're deferring this, but they're crediting you with some more efforts related to the uh, fires as well. I, I suspect <laughs> <laughs> that it was more communication around them and making draw, making sure the linkages between climate change and the Australian fires were clearly articulated uh, in your own inimitable fashion. Do you want to do you want to just you know for the sake of the record articulate clearly the uh, fingerprint of climate change on the Australian fires and floods?
1: Sure. So you know they've never seen anything like the bushfires that have. Um, over the last uh, month and a half now. Um, uh, nearly 20 million acres of uh, of, of forest um, burned. Um, it's the largest uh, bushfire, the most extensive bushfire in the history of this continent. And we've seen bushfires breaking out all around the continent of uh, Australia. Uh, it's As I'd like to say, it's not rocket science. You take extreme, unprecedented heat, you combine it with the unprecedented drought, which is what we're seeing here in southeastern Australia, in New South Wales. Um, You put those factors together, you're gonna get wildfires, bushfires. And the hotter and drier you make it, the more extensive, the more intense, um, and the faster spreading um, these fires are. And that's part of what makes them so dangerous when you have uh, so much fuel. Uh, You know, much of this continent is now like a tinderbox and you have all of this fuel. Uh, It turns out, by the way, that the um, intensity of the fires goes roughly as the square. It's roughly quadratic in the amount of fuel that's available. So when you double the amount of fuel, um, you make the fires four times as intense. Um, It's nonlinear, linear uh, and and that's what we're seeing here. Uh, And the rate at which they're spreading, again, is unprecedented. That creates a real challenge uh, for firefighters. Um, When you get fires that are just this large, um, this intense, and they create their own weather, it's extremely difficult to to fight them. And that's the challenge that Australians are up against right now. Now, we have had uh, rain over the past several days, and in fact, we have flooding rains now. We see extremes. Um, in both directions, and uh, that may help out a little bit. Um, We'll have to see how that plays out. But on the other hand, what we're seeing are sort of some of the uh, unexpected consequences. When you have all these fires and you have all of this ash, um, and then you get intense flooding, all that ash runs off um, into the rivers and into the ocean, and it impacts the wildlife there. It impacts fish populations, and we've seen massive uh, fish Uh, fish die-off, for example, in the Murray-Darling Basin here in southeastern Australia, and um, these uh, flash floods are likely to now uh, worsen that, intensify that.
0: Certainly, I'm I'm drawing parallels between the extremes that Australia is seeing and the slightly less extremes that the United States and North America are seeing with the wildfires in the west and northwest. Um, yep. The flooding the rain bombs that occurred in Nebraska and surrounding regions in the center of the middle of the year, um, yeah. and the other types of things so it 's interesting to draw the parallels between you know the one of the continents most subject to the impact of climate change and back to the united states Which of yeah. the, the parallels do you think is most telling and would most resonate with Americans?
1: Yeah, all of them. Of course, you know, the parallels between the wildfires in California and the bushfires here in Australia, and the striking fact that we had both going on at the same time, right? The California's uh, fire season isn't supposed to overlap with Australia's fire, fire season. Um, the two hemispheres are out of sync uh, in terms of the seasons. When it's winter in one, it's summer in the other, and vice versa. And yet, as the fire seasons get longer and longer, um, as you get less winter rains, whether you're talking about California or here in Australia, southeastern Australia, um, less winter rains, the dry season, the fire season starts earlier, it persists later. And so now we're literally seeing these fire seasons overlap. Now, part of why this is a problem is that we actually have finite infrastructure around the world. Um, to to fight these uh, fires um, with uh, water bombs, with large, um, you know, uh, planes that can dump huge amounts of water. There are a limited number of those available. um, And we literally have to move them around. And so when you're dealing with multiple wildfires and bushfires in different regions around the world, that makes it more difficult to compound. And one of the things we know about climate change, uh, there was an article that came out, uh, in fact, just within the last year, demonstrating that it's increasing the number of simultaneous extreme weather disasters. And that's that's uh, raising a real challenge for us uh, in terms of our ability, in terms of our resilience and our ability to, to combat these um, extremely dangerous and damaging extreme weather events that are made more intense by climate change, whether you're talking about the United States or Australia, the unprecedented heat waves and droughts and wildfires and, 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 and floods and superstorms, that is symptomatic of our warming of the planet by burning the fossil fuels and putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere.
0: And it's not just the technical resources too, it's the human resources. I yeah. know that uh, Canadian firefighters every year fly off to other parts of the world to provide their expertise and you know train people
1: there Um, yeah that's exactly right um we're we're seeing all those resources whether it's uh, infrastructure or human you know uh resources uh taxed by these massive simultaneous weather disasters that we're fighting around the world
0: yeah and the um you know it's it's interesting to see the you know um pulling on a thread I've been pulling on a thread of military CO2 emissions with you know some some external analysts asserting that the US military is the single large, largest source of CO2 emissions as an organization in the world um but of course the Kyoto protocol excluded it it was in the Paris accords to record military emissions but you know the United States withdrew from the Paris accords um so we, we don't really right. know
1: yeah yeah yeah, uh that that uh, is um you, you know it's it's interesting the, the the military factors into this in a number uh, of ways of course part of why we're fighting uh, dangerous wars in far off locations is uh, essentially to defend um the interests of fossil fuel companies that uh currently run the climate policy, energy and environmental policy in the United States uh, through the Trump administration. Um, And so there's a great uh, deal of irony there. Uh, The military, uh, of course, um, does uh, use quite a bit of carbon um, in their operations, burning of uh, carbon for transportation, energy. Um, Interestingly, though, the military increasingly is being deployed to deal with these very weather disasters that are being created by climate change, and you see that here in Australia, that the um, that that the military is is now involved. Um, it's a all hands on deck situation. We need all the resources that we have to to fight these unprecedented bushfires. And so now you're seeing the military taxed further because they have to actually assist um, with uh, these um, you know fighting these domestic um, climate generate climate change generated disasters, even as they, uh, you know, even as they serve their role, um, there, uh, when it comes to national security and, and national security, of course, um, when it comes to conflict, climate change is exacerbating that because it's creating increased competition for diminishing land, food, and water. Um, as we continue to see a rising global population, that's a recipe for, uh, a greatly increased conflict, and in fact, um, you know, the the international terrorism, ISIS, uh, grew out of uh, fundamentally what was climate change uh, generated. Stresses in Syria, um, Mm -hmm. unprecedented drought that led to the instability that ultimately allowed terrorist organizations like ISIS to to recruit people to their cause. And so there is a remarkable interconnectedness here when it comes to the the climate change uh, threat and our military.
0: Well, and and also our democratic governance as well. When I I look at the Syria um, conflict and the refugee crisis, um, you know, and the, the Clear scientific papers i read that ascribe um, the exact climate change exacerbated drought with part of the causality of the conflict um, arising, uh, and then I look at that refugee flow of almost a million refugees into uh, Europe, um, and it became a factor in both federal both the last two federal elections in Canada and the United States in terms of a talking point.
1: For and even in places like Italy.
0: Um, and Southern Europe and, and yes. Yep. So the, the rise of populism and right-wing populism anti-immigration stuff, I ascribe in part to climate change these days because of that
1: impact. That's right. We're, we're seeing environmental refugeeism. Um, this isn't a theoretical construct. It's something that's actually playing out. Um, uh, we see mass exodus from parts of uh, North Africa, um, uh, The this obviously the uh, Syria uh, as well Um, you know areas that are basically becoming too hot and dry for for human habitation Um, people are fleeing those lands and we've got less space now because of course uh, we're using more and more of our our space uh, the the land that we have um, for agriculture and uh, other uh, purposes and sea level rise um, is encroaching on our coasts, um, so we have diminishing, you know, available land as sea levels rise and flood our coastlines, and the tropics are getting too hot, and the subtropics and parts of the mid-latitude are getting too dry, and so people are being forced into a smaller and smaller area of the planet um, where, you know, where where human civilization is possible uh, at a time when, of course human population continues to increase. Uh, And that, as I said before, is a recipe for massive conflict. Uh, Certainly one of the
0: the memes that, you know, the deny and delay crowd like to assert is we'll just move north. But, you know, one of the things that I'm um, engaged in is an effort associated with managed retreat from the impacts of climate change for the government of Canada. And it's, you know, one of the key things we're looking at is permafrost in the north dissolving collapsing necessary infrastructure that gets food yep. and resources to remote Northern cities. Um, that's, that's
1: right. Yep. Um, and pipelines, uh, collapsing and, uh, highways, you know, as the permafrost melts, um, you see highways collapse, you see pipelines, um, that are, uh, uh that are, uh, destroyed. Uh, you see drunken forests, um, you see, Buildings that are just collapsing um, under their uh, foundation because the ground is shifting, and so you're absolutely right. Even in the areas that you might think, well, hey, at least climate change won't prevent us from living there. Well, actually, you know what? There's no escape from the impacts of climate change. It doesn't matter where you are.
0: Uh, and to bring that home to you know people in the United States, the um, you know one of the more interesting studies I, I read about I read this year was a machine learning study which. Reassessed the coastal digital elevation maps globally. It was a they historically they've been based on 2000 uh, year 2000 NASA radio uh, radar from um, satellites, but they used a machine learning approach to reassess that based upon lidar assessments in North America, tested in Australia where you are, and they found all sorts of 1.9 meters overestimation of near the sea elevations. Um, and the most interesting part of this for me was that even in the United States, one of the most um, highly mapped, um, highly instrumented countries in the world, the Everglades were expected to be uh, regularly inundated with salt water right. multiple times a year by 2050, and they're the source of the fresh water for the Biscayne Aquifer, which is the source of fresh water for the entire southern. Florida, of Southern Florida. That's so right. The follow on there is water that costs 2.5 times as much and an economy dependent on cheap water, no longer being viable.
1: That's right. And in fact, we did a study um, a couple of years ago, we published a, an article based on uh, the taking climate model output and, and using what's known as downscaling methods to, to try to understand what the regional impact of projected climate change would be on sort of the regional climate, the, the rainfall patterns and hydrology of the, um, of the Everglades uh, drainage. And uh, what we found was that, uh, you know, not only is it going to be subject to uh, saltwater intrusion uh, from, you know, the sea inward, but th- that region is expected to get quite a bit of, uh, drier, um, especially in the summer, um, but less winter rain as well. So you're going to have less, rainfall, less precipitation, and saltwater intrusion from the sides, um, that is, uh, it's not a good prognosis uh, for southern Florida. Um, And and that's, of course, neglecting the fact that it will literally be submerged, um, ultimately. Large parts, you know, the lower third of Florida will be submerged um, if we you know, see the melting of the Greenland ice sheet and large parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which increasingly appears to be a scenario that that we could commit to in the very near future. It might take some time to play out, but we may warm up the planet enough to ensure that that happens, no matter what we do. Um, the irreversible demise of uh, of the large parts of the Greenland ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet enough to get not just feet but meters of sea level rise and and literally submerge the southern third of Florida, and, and, and much of our uh, coastlines in the United States and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, when I did the assessment, I think Jacksonville is okay, but everything else down there is, you know, it's just going to be underwater if those things go. Right. Now, that's post-2100. I mean, the, the, one of the other interesting studies from last year was uh, the 10,000-year time frame view which you know most of us are focused on and the UNIPC is mostly focused on the 2100 view and 2050 views to give us a sense of planning horizons. But the 10,000 year view projected out and sea level rise is just going to continue past 2100, you know, unless we do some fairly radical stuff.
1: Yeah, we've locked in um, a a fair amount of sea level rise. That's the bad news. Even if we can, you know, basically reverse our carbon emissions, bring them down to zero by mid-century, we can probably prevent, uh, you know, planetary warming uh, beyond, uh, you know, two degrees Celsius, which is often pointed to as uh, dangerous levels of warming. But we will lock in hundreds if not thousands of years of uh, ocean warming and uh, literally the expansion of the ocean as the ocean warms, as the heat slowly penetrates into the deep ocean and that takes centuries to play out. Um, Seawater, like other substances, expands when it heats. And so you get sea level rise from that. And that's locked in, again, for centuries. The melting of the ice sheets is something else, again, that we commit to, which is to say that if we warm the planet you know, much beyond where we are now if we go beyond 2 degrees celsius there's a good chance that we lock in we set in motion the irreversible collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, or, or much of those ice sheets. And then again, we're talking 20 or more feet of, of sea level rise. Um, so that long-term horizon is very important to keep in mind because of the, the the so-called climate commitment, the fact that we commit to these long-term changes even, you know, by our behavior right now, by our carbon emissions right now. Uh, but the other Sort of side of this is that we may in fact um, see even greater sea level rise, even faster sea level rise than what the models currently project. That's sort of been the history of the science as we better resolve uh, the processes that are involved as our models become more intricate in terms of their ability to to really model the underlying physics of ice sheets and and how they interact with the other components of the climate system. What we're finding is that this, increasingly, these things can happen faster than we thought. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, We can't rule out several feet of sea level rise by the middle of this century. That was once a, a scenario that we thought we could confidently rule out. Now we can't. Yeah, certainly when certainly I talk not our friend
0: yeah. yeah certainly when I talk about this uh, the UN IPCC 5 report um, excluded some Greenland observational studies because it wasn't a good explanatory mechanism as my understanding And now those studies have come out and they do have a good explanatory, mechanism for what we're actually observing in the greenland ice sheet and so they're likely to be in the, the UN IPCC 6 report and i my suspicion is that sea level rise is likely to be closer to the business as usual scenario as the median scenario um in the sixth one do, do you have the same sense or do you have the a closer read on the the, the, re, the research
1: yeah i haven't a- I've seen the draft uh, report and what it says about sea level rise. There have been some interim uh, IPCC reports that have been published over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, the earlier, uh, late, late last year, there was um, an Arctic uh, climate assessment published by the IPCC, and so and there was some discussion of uh, of, of sea level rise. in ice sheet um behavior in that report and what you see is indeed what you're alluding to um, you know as the models become more realistic as we put more physics into it as we get more observations about what's actually happening um, those those estimates are going up and up and we'll see where they uh where they are when the CMA, when the ipcc sixth assessment is published um, but uh the IPCC assessments have uh, traditionally been very conservative because the nature of the process is a conservative one. The report reflects a consensus among literally thousands of the world's scientists, and so it ends up being sort of a scientific lowest common denominator. Um, The conclusions of the report are are often very conservative, and there are scientists who would argue that uh, uh, probably too conservative when it comes to sea level rise, and, and, and even with this next report, I, I suspect that that will remain to be the case because what we have here, we have observations, we have suggestions, um, you know, for example, just uh, within the last couple of weeks, an indication that the Thwaites Glacier um, of West Antarctica now appears to be um, you know, uh, collapsing. Uh, it appears to be more vulnerable to uh, warming, uh, subsurface warming from the, the, the oceans warm up and, and the subsurface waters start to uh, melt the ice shelves that float out on the ocean. And when you destabilize those ice shelves, then the inland ice can surge much more quickly um, out, out to sea. And, and so that appears to be playing out. Um, and we just don't know how quickly it can play out. But the history has been that we have always <laughs> tended to underestimate how things, uh, quickly these things can happen. And, and we're sort of beyond, uh, behind the eight ball uh, much of the time when it comes to uh, these assessment reports. And, and I suspect that'll be true here as well. I suspect that the, uh, the conclusions about sea level rise will still be quite conservative relative to what some of the experts in the field might tell you um, based on their own experiences, their own insights.
0: Yeah. the This ties into something else. We were talking about the IPCC 1.5 reports. Last year, you were at a conference um, and you gave a talk, the title of which was Emissions Reductions Required to Avoid Breaching Paris Limits. And yeah. the PRICE, um, because I, I wasn't able to find a copy of the, the report paper, said that you were going to argue that emission reductions must be considerably greater two or to times more than suggested um, to, you know, achieve... The historical baseline. Do you want to summarize your assertion there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Part of the, the problem here is that the IPCC has made a number of very conservative choices. I've been alluding to this um, in how they measure, for example, how much warming has already happened. Uh, and uh, they base that, for example, largely on one data set, um, the Hadley Center uh, temperature data set that doesn't really sample the, the Arctic region very well. Um, it leaves out um, uh, data from one of the regions that's uh, warming the fastest, and and they do that for conservative reasons because there are data gaps. Um, it requires you to sort of interpolate if you want to represent that region. You have to make some assumptions about you know the how the missing regions are likely to relate to those regions that you have, and other groups use more sophisticated methods to do that so that they're not missing out on capturing the warming that's happening in the region that's warming up uh, the fastest, uh, the Arctic um, in particular. And so so they use a very conservative assessment of how much warming has happened. And they do one other thing. And we had an article in the journal Nature uh, Climate Change a few years ago, um, sort of uh, pointing this out, uh, that uh, the IPCC um, and the studies upon which the IPCC assessments are largely based, tend to define the pre-industrial as the sort of late uh, 19th century, the mid to late 19th century. Uh, And basically, because that's as far back as the global thermometer records go. Uh, So if you want a global estimate of surface temperatures from thermometer measurements, um, you really only have the global sampling to go back to about uh, 1850. And so they end up using for example, the average from 1850 to 1900 as defining the reference state, the pre-industrial state. What we showed in our article is that um, you know, based on the observations that are available uh, that go farther back and also using climate model simulations where we can go farther back in time, uh, the, you know there was probably several tenths of a degree Celsius warming. Anthropogenic warming, greenhouse warming caused by human activity, by the time we got to the, you know, late 19th century, the industrial revolution began back in the early 1700s, uh, and so if you use what we argue is a more appropriate baseline, an earlier baseline, then there's actually been more warming. And it might seem like a small amount. It adds a couple tenths of a degree Celsius. But when you're trying to avoid 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is one of the targets now that is talked about as a, a target um, for you know, warming that we want to avoid, and And whether we can still do it is uh, subject to question. Um, But if you're trying to avoid 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, then it really matters whether we've already warmed 1 or 1.2 our argument would be that we've probably warmed closer to 1.2 degrees Celsius. That means there's a lot less wiggle room, only three-tenths of a degree Celsius before we get to 1.5. And that decrease in wiggle room leads to a rapid or a, a marked, I should say, reduction in the carbon budget that we have left. Um, at least a factor of two, less carbon that we can burn and remain under one and a half degrees Celsius than what the IPCC said. Now, there are some other studies that have gone beyond what we did that, again, uh, trying to use more appropriate assessments of how much warming has happened um, and and, and assessments of how much warming is likely to happen in the near term under continued fossil fuel burning. uh, um, They've argued that uh, we may already be past our budget for one and a half degrees Celsius. That means to avoid warming the planet more than one and a half at this point. Uh, we might actually have to actively take carbon back out of the atmosphere, not only stop burning carbon and putting it into the atmosphere, but actively taking it out, something that's very expensive, um, but uh, ultimately, we might have to turn to.
0: Yeah. To to turn to the the good news about scientific conservatism, you know, speaking with Mark Z. Jacobson recently, or Mark Z. Jacobson, however yeah. the Z or Z is pronounced, um, depending on what country you're from. Recently, and you know, we're, one of the things in my assessment of his most recent 143 country report was his very conservative set of solution technologies. Um, yeah. you know, for example, in the United States, I, I have spent a lot of time looking at pump storage hydro recently, and he leans into that very cheap and very long lasting per megawatt hour form of storage. Very, he, he relies on that very lightly and instead has yeah. a very significant dependence upon very expensive lithium ion for because it's more conservative choice right um you know and so on that note of you know the positives as we you know we're, you know when we started talking about having this conversation, I said you know we've we've changed a decade, so you know, one of the th- things I just wanted to give you an opportunity to think about was over the 2010s were the top three most positive things you saw. And what are the three things you think are most positive for people to think about for the 2020s? Yeah,
1: um, we'll try to, you know, the the two are closely related, because I would say, looking forward, um, it involves doing more of the things that are working right now that we can already see are working. And so mm-hmm. I would maybe sort of uh, attack that both both at the same time uh, pointing out uh, you know first of all as you've alluded to uh, folks like Mark uh, Jacobson using pretty conservative assumptions where they're really only dealing for example with current technology not even taking into account the fact that we are likely to develop um, more uh, efficient and sophisticated, you know, renewable energy um, uh, technology in the future, more efficient uh, solar cells, um, uh, cheaper and more efficient wind turbines, um, better battery storage, considerably better battery storage, um, which really allows you to deal with the intermittency issue that arises with renewables. Um, so there are all these uh, things that, you know, the good news is I'm sure that we will see huge uh, imp- Improvements, um, you know, uh, more sophisticated technology, decreased, um, you know, uh, better economies of scale um, in manufacturing these things in the future, and um, and and a lot of sort of learning by doing as we actually deploy um, massive uh, amounts of renewable energy, we'll, we'll learn better, you know, uh, what works, you know, what works the best, and, uh, and 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 that all of these things mean that um, we're, we're likely to benefit quite a bit from, again, uh, from what we learn as we deploy this technology and additional sort of technological innovations. And, and Mark in his work ignores all that. He says, let's just using what we have now, what could we, you know, what, and, and scaling that up, what what could we do? What could we accomplish? And I think he makes a very convincing case that we can, uh, you know, generate all of the projected um, global, you know, energy electricity demand in particular um, within a couple decades um, from renewables alone if we, you know, invest sufficiently in them. So that's clearly, as you allude to, that's one very good news story. And the fact that we are seeing. Uh, massive growth in renewable energy around the world, Um, even in the United States right now with an administration that has done everything it can to scale back incentives for renewable energy. um, But just based on what's happening at the state level, at the local level, what companies are doing, we're seeing a sort of a massive shift away from uh, fossil fuel energy towards renewable energy. We're seeing the collapse of coal, uh, uh, for example, which is the you know the the most uh, carbon intensive fossil fuel, um, so there's good news there. And then finally, the third thing would be, and perhaps the most important, would be, you know, not the tipping point in climate that we worry about, but the tipping point in in public consciousness, and the youth climate movement in in particular, and the Greta Thunbergs of the world, and and this massive global movement that um, it has uh, created, that this youth activism has created, where we really shifted the conversation now. Um, towards where it is always needed to be um, towards our responsibility as a civilization not to destroy this planet for future generations and so i think we're seeing the fossil fuel industry uh, lose its moral license um, and we're seeing uh, and, and part of why that's happening is because of the assertiveness and the um, and and the the courage that our young folks are showing but Moving forward, looking over in the years ahead, we can't leave this on, on our children. We can't leave this all on, on the kids. We have to take advantage of, you know, the, the foot in the door that their efforts have provided us. And now it's our turn as, you know, the adults um, to, to make sure that their efforts aren't wasted and that we do turn the corner and we do get off fossil fuels in time to avert catastrophic warming uh, for us and future generations.
0: And certainly, you know, tying a couple of threads together, um, Greta was just nominated for the uh, Nobel Prize. um, And I've argued that it's a very clear uh, peace prize connection because global warming is going to be one of the largest causes of conflict and small scale and large scale wars over the next 100 to 200 years. So her actions are
1: directly in line with global peace. Oh, absolutely. And I would say saving the planet, you know, is about the greatest uh, act of, 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 of peace <laughs> that, that one could um, engage in. And so, yes, I, I think it's great that she's been nominated and I, and I hope that the, the committee recognizes uh, the merit of that nomination and awards her the prize. I think she couldn't be more deserving. And there couldn't be a more important time um, for that sort of recognition of the the importance of what she and, and the other kids around the world are doing. And, and her fundamental message is, listen to the scientists like you, and be
0: adults. Deal with reality. Because she's still 16 or 17. We have to be taking our stuff. So, Michael, um, we're at the half-hour mark. Great. Right. I really appreciate your time. I could happily spend more time asking you questions and (laughs) probing stuff, but I I do want to be respectful of your time. Do you have any, just a last open-ended thought? You um, have an audience uh, through the clean technica medium of people who are fully on side with climate action and who are solutions oriented. would, Would you have any last words for that audience?
1: I would. Um, You know, I'm here in Australia right now on a sabbatical and I'm watching the impacts of climate change play out in real time. Uh, Australia is very much on the front lines of dealing already now with the, the dangerous impacts of climate change. Um, and there is uh, intransigence among the current government, the Morrison government, when it comes to Australia actually doing its part, um, in, uh, global efforts to reduce carbon emissions. But I can tell you from actually meeting and talking with the people here, um, they get it. There's a real sense here that, um, Australia can can make a difference, can show the rest of the world that, yes, we might be on the front lines of uh, uh, dealing with the impacts of climate change, but we can also be on the front lines of uh, of actually doing something about it. And uh, one of the great developments here is that you are seeing massive deployment of solar and and wind energy. Um, You're seeing a real a transition in the energy economy here in Australia. And we're seeing that in the United States as well. And so while one can look to sort of the intransigence of some of our current uh, politicians when it comes to the climate challenge that we face, there's some good news. There's some good things that are happening. And we've got an election in the United States that's less than a year away, where we Americans will have an opportunity to just show some real leadership to elect uh, both a president and all the way down the ticket um, politicians who are willing to do what's right for us to represent our interests rather than the fossil fuel interests who too often funded the campaigns of uh, the politicians in power. So um, I think there's a real monumental opportunity in the states uh, for, for us to turn the corner um, and join the rest of the world as we move forward in solving this problem. And that would be a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to this
0: November being better than the November three years ago. <laughs> Me too. Um, uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy your sabbatical. Um, try to avoid the, four, the fires. Um, and uh, you know, thank you so much for the efforts you've made
1: on behalf of the world for the past several decades. Well, well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I hope to do so again in the future. Absolutely. Zach, any last words from you? Thank you both. Uh, just want to echo those, those uh,
0: the great appreciation for your work. And um, as I noted at the beginning before this recorded, just uh, thank you for pushing through the smear campaigns that targeted have targeted you so strongly. You know, many people, I'm, I'm sure millions of people have really personally felt thankful to you for, for pushing thank through. You.
1: Well, I really appreciate that, guys. It's been great talking with you. Thanks, Thanks a, lot. a lot. Have have a good day.
0: Thank you for listening to Cleantech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more Cleantech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Cleantech Talk.